Amen. If you have a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Your chime says we're going to be in verses 19 through 22. Uh, but I don't write these sermons way in advance. I, I work on them the week of, and, and I've made an adjustment. They're nobody's fault but mine. Uh, we're going to be in verses 19 through 24 uh, this morning. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through uh, 24. And uh, as you're opening up there, let me just say what a joy it is to get to worship together today. Uh, if you are a guest with us, thank you for being here today. I want to say what a joy it is when we have people who choose to come worship with us. We delight in that. And so thank you so much for being here. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us, beginning in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions or sins until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Let's pray together. Oh God, I ask you if you would to please open our hearts and minds today in order that we might receive your word, Father, and be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. At this point, nearly ten years ago, when I became the pastor of this church, um, we had a daycare at that time, and we had a chapel for our daycare. And we happened to have that chapel in the church chapel. So had several children there that were in the older ages in the preschool. And each week they would go down to the chapel and someone would share a little Bible lesson for them. So me being the new pastor of the church, I got invited to speak at preschool chapel. And I love to speak at preschool chapel. You've probably heard me talk a little bit about when Whitney used to teach preschool in another church. I was the chapel director. I was dean of chapel. Um, down there, and uh, I got to go do chapel with preschoolers every week, and I love to do it. I, I love the opportunity to interact with children in that way and teach them the Bible, and frankly, it's helpful for me. So I was excited, so excited to get to go teach these kids. And so we got down to the chapel, and as I come in, I noticed that all the teachers have had the children take the pew cushions, their loose pew cushions, and turn them up, to put them, you know, to turn them up on the back of the pew, and so they're 
little bottoms are on the hard pew and they're leaning against the soft cushion. So I kind of looked at it and I, our director was new as well. And I said, hey, do you know why we do this? And she said, I don't know. I assume it's just to keep the, keep the cushions nice. And I said, well, I don't really care about that. I feel bad for these little kids. You know, that cushions are meant to be sat on. So why don't we, and I looked at all the kids and I said, hey, who, who wants to sit on the cushion? And, you know, kids, I could have said anything. They would have been enthusiastic about it. And so, you know. Uh, so I said, all right, everybody stand up. Let's put the cushions back down and sit on the cushions. And they sit down and they're ooing and, oh, wow, this is great. Wow. And I was like, you know, I'm not like other pastors. I'm a cool pastor. I, uh, you know, uh, these little kids deserve a cushion just like everybody else deserves a cushion. Look at me. So I began to try to teach um, these kids, three, four, five-year-olds, the Bible, which is pretty easy on its own and uh, start trying to talk to him about it. And just a couple of minutes in, I noticed some sort of a, a, a pandemonium beginning over here, out of my corner vision. And I try to just keep going because I'm, I'm trying to be a cool pastor, you know, and I'm not, kids are going to act up a little bit. They're going to move around. Next thing I know, whole rows of children are falling into the floor. Because the fact that you can prop a cushion up and the fact that you've got hardwood seats on your it means that it's real easy for a pew cushion to slide off the pew and so with the wiggling and the moving and everything else that happened uh, they all began to fall off and they all are falling in the floor it's pure pandemonium kids are going crazy teachers are looking at me like who is this guy where did they find him uh, and finally I said, hey, everybody, do me a favor. Take your pew cushion and put it behind you and sit right down on the pew. Let me see, there's Joan. Did you know I did that, Joan, if I told you that? It's con confession for everyone here today. The statute of limitations up. At this point, as we go through Galatians, I wouldn't be surprised if you're asking the question I should have asked. What's the point of this? Why do we do this? I, I probably should have assumed that just, just because I assumed something was done a certain way didn't mean that was why. What is the point of this? What is the point of the law? You see the way the text says it. Why then the law? Paul feels the weight of what you're probably asking at this point. Why then the law? I mean, if... God always intended and always, always did give promises by grace through faith. If, if God always gave us these things by grace, if He always wanted His people to believe and receive His promises that way, why then the law? Maybe today you're tempted to simply throw away the law or even despise the law because of grace. You say, I'm a grace-based Christian. I, I believe in grace. What's this whole law thing for? Let's throw this out. Let's get off the law. Let's forget the law. We maybe even want to disparage the law a little bit. Some of us might even be tempted to mock the law. What silliness we might find there if we're not careful. Paul is arguing here, and later in the book of Galatians, we'll highlight for our personal lives what the purpose of the law truly is. But before you throw the law out, 
you have to answer the question, why then the law? Why did God have it there? We've talked plenty, I think, about what the law was not meant for. Today, why don't we talk a little bit about what the law is meant for? What is the law? Why then the law? I want to show you this morning three purposes that God had in giving His people the law. Now, if you're not familiar with the whole of the Bible, let me help you understand just a little bit. Early on in the book of Genesis, God gave a promise first, I would say, to Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one day a, a seed of the woman, a, an offspring is how it's translated here, an offspring of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve towards sin. I believe it's the devil. And then, throughout the book of Genesis, there's a little bit of a tracing of who this seed, who this offspring, who will be the one who inherits the promise. And then we get to Abraham, and Abraham's told that he is the one who will receive the promises of God, and he receives them by faith. And then you go nearly, uh, nearly half a millennium later, and God raises up a man named Moses, and he constitutes Moses as the leader of a new people, and he goes to make them a nation as he brings them out of Egypt, and when God brings them out of Egypt to bring them into the land in which He would make them a nation, He gave them a law, a, a, a law that would govern the way they lived their lives as a country, the way they lived their lives as a religious people, and the way they lived their lives as moral agents, as individuals. God gave them this law to govern their lives, and in so many ways it came to define what it meant to be an Israelite, for better or for worse. So why? Why did God do that? Three purposes this morning and why God gave the law. Here's the first point this morning. The law was given to show sinfulness. The, the law was given to show sinfulness or to reveal sinfulness. Paul says it really clearly here. Verse 19, why then the law? Well, he says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring or the seed would come. That is the descendant, the Messiah would come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Hang with me. Confusing verses on the front end, but I think we can see some clarity here as we consider the purpose of the law let me put it like this. The law of God, as it was revealed to Moses, was intentionally temporary and was intentionally inferior to the promise that God made to Abraham. It was intentionally meant not to supplant the promises made to Abraham, not to replace the promises made to Abraham. That's what Paul's arguing. But that it was intentionally temporary and inferior to the promise, it was there to serve a means to an end. The law, uh, here's, here's Paul's argument. You, you can see the way that the law was intentionally temporary inferior to the promise, and you can see it by the means by which each was received. So we're going to go back to Old Testament history again here for just a moment, so bear with me, right? Remember, I know some of you love the New Testament. I love the New Testament. I know some of you might sort of get a little, little bored, a little frustrated with the Old Testament. But you can't read the New Testament without trying to at least understand the Old Testament. 
It's the whole, the whole of the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. And, and one of my goals in ministry is to help you see why the Old Testament is so valuable to you as a believer. I digress. Here, here's, so, so don't get frustrated with me as we start to talk about the Old Testament a little bit. Here's, here's what Paul's arguing. Notice what he says. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. There are verses all over the Old Testament that imply that God gave the law to Moses, and somehow or another, the angels were involved in the giving of the law. It's in Deuteronomy 33. There are other places. There's reflections on the giving of the law in the Psalms that show a gathering of angels there with the Lord as he did that. The same is true of creation. If you read Psalms and other things about how God created the world, he did so with angels present. And uh, the angels were gathered around as God made these things. And so you see another way in which the promises of God and the covenants of God are pictured throughout the Bible as a new creation. The, the presence of angels at the giving of the law is one of those realities. So, so here's, here's what Paul's arguing, that when the law was given to God's people, well, you probably know some of what happened, don't you? That angels were involved in the giving of the law, and who went to the mount, Who went up the mountains? Anybody know? Moses, right? Moses, that's the intermediary, I think, that Paul's referring to here. That the law was given by angels through an intermediary. That is, there are layers between God at Sinai. So, some, some interpreters in Paul's day also alluded to the presence of gloom and smoke and fire on the mountain as that was a, a, a physical manifestation of the presence of angels on the mountain as well. So you see this huge picture at Sinai and, and you have only Moses going up the mountain to receive the law of God. And you have all the people down the mountain doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Making golden calves and all kinds of things while Moses is up on the mountain receiving God's law. And so he receives God's law and he brings the law to the people. Now that's different than how Abraham received the promises of God. Right? God himself spoke to Abraham. God himself came directly to Abraham and directly gave Abraham the promises. This is another way that Paul's arguing for the preeminence of the promises of God. He's saying the very nature by which the promises were received show that they're greater than the law. So why then the law? God gave the law, Paul says. He says he gave it because of transgression. Now, if you go and read through Romans and read in other places, I think it's clear that what Paul has in mind here is that when he says because of transgressions, he's arguing that the law was given to reveal sinfulness. To reveal sinfulness. Some of you might wonder sometimes, why in the world would God give us a law that he knew we couldn't keep? God knew we couldn't keep the law. Why would He do that? Why would He give us this law? Why would He go to all this trouble to give, a, give us a law that we couldn't keep? And why then would He even give us a law if He planned to save us by grace the whole time? It's because you need God's law. And God's people needed God's law to understand and to realize how sinful they are. 
And that's why by the time Jesus comes into the world, you can see the way that people who claim to follow the law had created all sorts of loopholes in the law. And, that, and that's why legalism tends to add laws that a legalist can keep to the law and focus on those more than the ones that God has commanded us to keep. It's because what's really happening in the law, and when we go face to face with the law of God and the revelation of the holiness of God in His law, it ought to not make us puff out our chest and think about how good we are at law keeping. You know? Guess what? You know how good I've done this week? I made a 6 out of 10 on the Ten Commandments. I bet, I bet there's a very few people who made a 6 out of 10 this week, you know? We're not in this room right now. I bet many of us didn't make it quite to 6 obeying the law this week, right? Think about it for just a moment. It doesn't make, it's not meant to make us stick our chest out and say, look how good I've done this week. I made a 9 out of 10 on the law. I got, man, you can't believe it. And I only coveted for about 10 seconds. Made it all the way down the line. That was not the purpose of the law. It's to make you think about how good you are, how good you are at keeping the law. God gave the law so that we can see, as a picture of His holiness, so that we can see how truly sinful we are. It was added because of transgressions. Now I want you to bear in mind that God did not give us the law to create sin. God doesn't serve sin. God doesn't love sin. He loves sinners, but He doesn't rejoice in sin. He doesn't try to add to sin. No, God gave us the law to reveal sin. God's holiness and God's expectations are the same whether we're around or not. Whether the law's been given or not, God is still God. But you see, so often we're frustrated with the law and we're frustrated with God's commands precisely because they're doing their job. That they're meant to show us our sins. You see, a lot of us tend to get caught up in using the law the wrong way. We try to build our righteousness or earn God's favor with it, but then we get frustrated with God about the fact that we used His gift wrong. No, God did not give His people the law for us to try to be more righteous. He gave us the law so that we could see our sinfulness and our need for Him. And second of all, not only... Not only was the law given to show sinfulness, but second of all, the law was given to highlight promise. The, the law was given to highlight promise. You see, so often we sense that grace and law or law, gospel and law or promise and law are like this. That they're enemies, that they're opposed to one another. But when we use the law the way God meant for it to be used, when we see it for the purpose for which God gave it to us, then we start to realize that it's a beautiful gift that God's given us to highlight His promises. It's a beautiful backdrop to the promises of God. Here's another question. Paul asked the question again. Is the law, I mean, if you've really followed the logic of Galatians, or if you read through Romans and really follow the logic of Romans, these sorts of questions naturally come up. Here, he says another one here, another question. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? What a good question. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? 
with all this talk of promise, last week, you know, I tried to hammer it home as much as I could. When you think Old Testament, you should think promise, not law. So now you might be asking, well, what is the deal with the law? Why did Israel have such a high view of it? Why is it that I tend to want to think about the Old Testament as centered on the law? Was it a bigger deal than the promises? Here's, here's Paul's logic. Notice what he says. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's the logic. Let me, let me put it in layman's terms, if you will. First of all, the law was not given so it could give life. The law was not given so that you might be regenerated by it. It wasn't given to deliver you from the curse of sin. If so, if that were the case, if that was the purpose of the law, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. That's what Paul's saying. If that was the purpose of God sending the law was to make to give you life, to deliver you from sin through the law, then righteousness would be by the law. But instead, what the law did was it, quote, imprisoned everything under sin in order to highlight the promise by faith in Jesus. This is what Israel should have seen. They should have seen that the law is kept and that those who do them live by them, but the promises are received by faith alone and that the promises are kept by God. This is what we have to see as well. We have to see that the purpose of the law is to highlight the promises of God received by faith. This is what it works like. First of all, we're sinners. We are sinners and we sin and we see the way that we disobey the law of God. And we know, though, that God loves us and He means good for us. He's made promises to us. And He's given us the law to help us see our sin. And so when we look at the law and realize how unable we are to keep the law, we are then pushed back to grace. We thank God that He keeps His promises despite our inability to uphold our own obedience. In fact, when God made promises to Abraham, there was an assumption that his descendants would one day break the covenant. In fact, it was why God signified himself in the covenant as the covenant keeper, and not Abraham. Do you see it? Do you see the way that God keeps his promises despite our inability to uphold our own righteousness? If you ever just thought and wondered, if God asks us to do all this stuff, why does he stick with us like this? Paul tells us in Timothy it's because he cannot deny himself. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. God is God. And so when you, a sinner, begin to realize how incapable you are of keeping the law of God, you ought not then to try to come up with a law you can keep or try to go back to the law or just sit around and feel guilty all the time. It's a a means by which God highlights his promises. My friends, go back to grace. Go back to grace when you can't keep the law. The law reveals sin. The law highlights promise. And finally, the law was given to drive us to faith. This is the point, and this is where we make mistakes. So many of us take the law and we try to use it as an end unto itself rather than allowing it to drive us to faith. Every one of us here today is tempted toward 
a sort of legalism that's rooted in law-keeping rather than rooted in trust in God, faith in Jesus. Notice what Paul says here in verses 23 and 24. Before faith came, now bear in mind this is just a shorthand way he's talking about the coming of Jesus. Not that The whole point of Paul's argument is that faith came when Abraham had faith. It's been about faith the whole time, but Paul's making sure it's clear, though, that there's a unique faith that's required of those who put trust in Jesus. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In other words, let's just say that you, well, we don't have to just say, you are. You're a sinner, and you are guilty under the law of God. And let's just say you've called every lawyer in town and said, is there any loophole in the law that can let me off the hook on this? Do I have any chance, any hope? Every person you talk to says, listen, I've read the law. I've looked at the law. You have no hope. There's no technicality. There's no loophole. There's no no way to go back and say, well, technically, you could say here. No, you are guilty of breaking the law of God. You're imprisoned under sin and there's no hope in the law. But there is hope for you. Because the hope you have doesn't come from whether or not you've kept the law, but whether or not Jesus Christ has kept the law on your behalf. He has given you His righteousness by grace through faith. And so the law keeps you imprisoned under sin, but Jesus sets you free from The penalty of sin. Paul goes on. He gives another example. Not only are we imprisoned by sin, but also the law was our guardian. That's a a Greek word that means uh, uh, a tutor or a live-in tutor. It really means pedagogue. You've probably heard of pedagogy. or It means to teach children. This was a, a role specifically in the ancient Greek world where there was a servant in the household that ra- helped raise a child and teach them all the things they needed to know. But faith means that you're no longer under the tutelage of a guardian, but instead you're now a son or a daughter with a full inheritance In Christ, you are now a child of God. Let me put it like this. The law is meant to hold you captive. The law is meant to teach you your need for God in Christ. You're you're being meant in the law to to be told your need for faith, your need for deliverance, your need for Christ. Properly understood and used, the law leads you toward faith. Do you see it? Do you see the way? that you need to put your trust in something besides yourself? Think about it for a moment. Think about it for a moment. Think about how good you're doing at keeping up with God's commands. And again, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Imagine for a moment that you've got the Ten Commandments down. At least according to the letter of the law, you've got the Ten Commandments down. And you come and let's just imagine it worked this way. And you say, Pastor, I've got the Ten Commandments down. What's next? And I say, okay, here you go. But you've got the Ten Commandments handled? Now, let me introduce you to a little document called the Sermon on the Mount. Let's, let's look at that standard of righteousness. Not, not only are you not allowed to murder anyone, but you're also not allowed to hate anyone, lest you be guilty of murder. Not only are you supposed to stay uh, and not be 
uh, uh, not cheat on your spouse or, or have sex out of marriage or whatever else. Not only that, but you can't even lust in your heart after another person lest you be guilty of not keeping the law. I don't know how you would walk away if you were expecting to have to just keep the law, but I'm guessing it wouldn't be good, that you wouldn't be happy. But this is the purpose of the law. When we understand it the way it ought to be understood, it leads us toward faith. Instead, you come to my office and say, Pastor, I'm struggling with the Ten Commandments, and I've not even gotten to the Sermon on the Mount. And I say, you have got to put your trust and faith in Jesus. You've got to lean on Him and lean on His Holy Spirit and grow in this way. The great hymn says it so clearly. How is it that the law is meant to lead us to faith? How is it that God uses the law? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. The law is God's grace in your life to help you realize your need for a Savior. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time, you may say, listen, I'm doing all I can to try to keep the law's commands but I'm struggling, you need to put your faith in Jesus. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means for you to put your trust and faith in Jesus. If you need someone to talk to, you come forward. Second of all, second of all, you may be a believer and you may say, Pastor, I, I'm just struggling. I'm, I'm struggling greatly uh, with walking by faith with Jesus. I'd love to talk with you this morning or this is simply open for you to pray. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. Love to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together.